think I got our Facebook Live crowd tuned in right here to my left. Has anyone ever researched your genealogy? I know I've talked to a few of y'all in here that, that have um, done some extensive research into your family history. You know, it can be a, a pretty interesting uh, task to, to undertake, especially if you find somewhere down, down the line you're related to someone important, or I guess it can be disappointing if you find you're related to someone who did some terrible things. Um, but it seems like that kind of research became even more popular some years ago when some of these ancestry companies began offering the DNA testing. So not only could you uh, do the hard work of, of tracing your, your genealogy by birth and marriage records, but now you could actually um, spit in a tube and mail it off and they'll end up sending you back um, the breakdown of ethnicities that you are and where your ancestors probably originated from. Who knows if any of that's true or not, but that's what they tell you. And the thing is, the DNA is a pretty powerful tool. It contains your genetic code. It determines all your physical composition and everything about your body. And DNA isn't something you choose. It's something passed down, and it can be traced back to reveal who you belong to and where you came from. And as I studied the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, I began to see that this passage provides a little bit of a spiritual DNA test for us. There, there's a spiritual paternity test in this text today that reveals who we belong to spiritually. And the spiritual DNA test is far more important and significant than any, any physical test we could take in this life because the results of this test have ramifications not only for our life today but for all of eternity so I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 8, and we'll be picking up where we left off last week. In John chapter 8, we'll be in verse 31. John eight thirty-one says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So let's first get our bearings by recapping how we've gotten here in verse 31. Standing in the place where the Jews would ignite the four enormous lanterns during the, in the temple during the Feast of Booths, Jesus declared he is the light of the world. And that led to an intense discussion with the Pharisees. They were so blind to the truth of his words, yet verse 30 told us that many of them actually believed. But remember, as we've seen in John's gospel already, that not all belief is true belief. We've seen the crowds in chapter 6. They, they crisscross the hills in the sea just to keep up with Jesus, but yet once he starts saying things that they don't like, they walk away. It shows that their belief wasn't true belief, their fragile faith crumbled. They didn't count the cost of following Jesus, so we have yet to see in this passage if, if this belief of these Pharisees is faith or not. 
And so here in verse 31, it says that he's actually talking to these Jews that did believe. And these were part of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And he describes to them what it means to be his disciples. So Jesus never leaves it up to us to to, uh, determine what that definition is. He tells us, and he gives them a bit of a formula for what discipleship is. And it'd be well for us to ingrain this in our own hearts and minds this morning. The formula for discipleship that Jesus gives begins with them abiding in his word. Now, what does that mean? I feel like uh, when I, as I grew up in church, anytime I'd hear a verse or a teaching on the word abiding, I never quite understood it. I feel like I never could quite grasp what does that word mean. It's not one that we use a whole lot in our normal language. Maybe it comes up in some, some legal documents um, but I, could, I never felt like I really understood what it meant. The full meaning seemed elusive. But it's a word that we see in the New Testament, often used by the Apostle John, both in the Gospel and in his letters. And it's used several different ways. We're told to abide in Christ. In other places, we're told Christ abides in us. Then it tells us that the Word abides in us. But here he says we are to abide in his Word. So, Here's my best attempt at understanding this phrase. When Jesus says we're to abide in his word, he really means we are to make a home there. We're to sink our roots down deep into it and and have no uh, plans of ever leaving, just like a tree as it grows. That, you, don't move a, you don't move a tree, especially as it gets bigger. Those roots are settled. That tree is not moving And so we don't leave it. We persevere holding fast to the word. There's a lingering with no intention of ever leaving. And this is is so much more than having just a, a few favorite Bible verses memorized. This is so much more than having some scripture art from Hobby Lobby hanging on the wall in your house. Nothing wrong with that, but this is more than that. This is a deep commitment to knowing God's word, to loving God's word, and ordering our entire lives around it. So Jesus says, if you do that, you are truly my disciples. Now, why would Jesus say this? He has these people, Pharisees even, have apparently just believed in him, and now he's already challenging their belief and faith. Like, if you want to start a movement and gain a crowd and gain some power and a following, this isn't the best intention. You just, you just say, yeah, hop on the bandwagon, let's go. But that's not what Jesus is doing. It's even, even with the powerful elites. These would be great people to have on his side. So what are you doing, Jesus? Again, this shows us that Jesus was never interested in just multiplying fans or even converts if they didn't have genuine faith and they hadn't counted the cost of what it meant to follow him. He wants authentic faith. He wants true belief. And he always challenges people to face the reality of their belief. And so the person who abides in his word is a true disciple, and that abiding leads to two results. The first is the abiding in his word results in knowing the truth. God's word is perfect and infallible. It is 100% true without error. It's the truth of life and death. It's the truth of salvation and condemnation. It's the truth of the gospel. And then the second result comes from that. The truth will set you free. So the natural question is, what does it set us free from? That's what these Jews were asking. They, they, they were like, what are we being set free from? They understand he's talking in spiritual terms, but, but they say they're offspring of Abraham. 
the first Jew, if you will, and they follow the God of Abraham. So they're saying we've never been enslaved to another God or system of belief. They're, in, they're actually equating their physical ancestry with their spiritual ancestry. But Jesus is going to show them that that's not actually the way it works. And verse 34 contains one of the most important truths about sin that we could ever understand. Which, by the way, is something we need to work at. In, in order to fully understand grace and salvation and redemption, we first must have a better understanding of sin and the nature of sin. Far too often we treat sin as something that could harm us, but doesn't really pose that much of a threat. Kind of how many people view the coronavirus. You know, yeah, there's some risk and it could harm me if I caught it, but it isn't so high of a risk to keep me from living my life. That may very well be true for the coronavirus, but so many people treat sin like that as well. And we take it lightly. We even soften it by categorizing sins or even relabeling some sins as just vices. We allow it to remain in our lives. And when we play with sin, we think we're playing with a kitten, but we're actually playing with a tiger that wants to devour us. And Jesus says that everyone, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So Jesus reveals the true nature of all sin. It's a slave master. This is confirmed throughout the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 6.16, 6, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And then 2 Peter 2.19, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Sin doesn't want just a piece of your life. It doesn't want to just destroy a little aspect of your life. Sin wants to control you, to bind you. It's not something to play with. Sin wants to use you like a puppet on a string to do its bidding because it's a master. And if anyone practices sin, he is a slave to sin. And a slave has no freedom, and a slave has no hope of gaining freedom. But against that dark reality, the, the truth of verse 36 shines that much more brightly. So if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. That's what we were just singing. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. And when we know what we've been set free from, how much greater is that truth? But how does it happen? It happens by what he said in verse 31 and 32. It's hearing, believing, and abiding in the words of Jesus, which leads to the truth that sets us free. There's a formula there. The truth of the gospel breaks the chains of sin, and we move from slaves to sin to sons of God. And we'll return there at the end as well. But, but here's what Jesus' Jesus's response gets a little confusing, because he does affirm to them, you are the offspring of Abraham, in verse 37. But then in verse 38, he says, I speak of what I've seen from my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. So notice Jesus is setting them up. Two different fathers here, one with a capital F, which we know that's God the Father, um, and another one with a lowercase f. So not the same fathers here. Let's pick back up in verse 39 to see how he explains this. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. 
So you can feel the tension rising here between Jesus and these Pharisees. They again claim Abraham is their father, but Jesus says there's something off. If Abraham is your father, you would be doing the acts that Abraham did. That is, you'd be serving righteousness. More than anything, Abraham is known for his righteousness, right? His, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. We see that quoted all throughout the New Testament. And there is this notion among the Jews, especially back then, that all descendants of Abraham who generally followed God would enter the kingdom of God one day. Like the righteousness of Abraham was that amazing that it stored up kind of enough credit for all Jews. They presumed a privilege being a physical descendant of Abraham. But Jesus tells them, you can't be of Abraham because you're not listening to the truth that's coming from me from God. And Abraham always listened to the truth. To which they get a little petty in their response. And in verse 41, they say, we were not born of sexual immorality. Now that may seem kind of random, but it seems that they're actually taking a cheap shot at Jesus' own conception. Of course, no one during that time would have believed or probably even known Jesus' real birth narrative. Of course, we know from the gospel accounts that Mary was miraculously pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. But who's going to believe a teenage girl when, they, when she tells them that? I, I wouldn't have. Who's going to believe them? And so... Mary probably went her whole life with this stigma on her that, that she conceived Jesus out of wedlock. And of, of course, these Jews would have done their homework on their greatest competition, Jesus. And so it seems like they're kind of they're trying to give a cheap shot to Jesus here as they defend themselves. But here's where Jesus goes all in. And he says to them in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So there's some parts of the Gospels that you read and think, I can't believe Jesus just said that. <laughs> this, is, this is one of those. Like, is, is Jesus allowed to say that? He says, your father is the devil, and your will is to do his desires. So I don't know where some people get this idea of Jesus being a hippie sort of person who's always just hugging people and, and wanting everybody to get along because that's not what you see in the Gospels in the life of Jesus. He's consistently saying things that divide people, that cause people to, to either believe or not believe. They have to respond one way or another, and he always confronts their sins. And he lays it all out here. He says, the reason you don't love me, the reason you don't like what I say, is because your father is the devil, and you love to do what he desires. And to drive this home, Jesus gives two characteristics about the devil. First, he says he's a murderer. From the very beginning, this is likely very true when you think of the account in Genesis, how Satan, he tempted and deceived Adam and Eve into eating of the fruit. 
and in so doing brought sin into the world, and sin brought death. And so, very true, he was a murderer from the beginning. And then the second is that he's a liar. He can't even stand the truth because there's no truth in him. It, when he lies, it's just coming from his very nature. He just breathes it out. And I'm sure Jesus could have kept on going, giving more points about the devil, but he's making this clear. You want to kill me because that's what your father wants to do. You can't stand the truth of my words because your father can't stand the truth. And again, pause and feel the seriousness and the depth of the nature of sin. Sin wants to enslave you, but sin is also a reflection of Satan who has been sinning from the beginning. John, John actually reiterates this in 1 John 3, 8, saying, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. You know, as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised by anything that we see on the news. We can certainly and should be sorrowful and even angry at times, but we shouldn't be surprised by recent events. I mean, how do you explain the recent pattern of unjust deaths of people of color. Those responsible are doing what their father desires, murdering. How do you explain people taking advantage of protests to begin rioting and looting and burning buildings? They're doing what their father has been doing all along, stealing, killing, and destroying. This world is broken. It is, no one can deny that, and that includes most of all the people that are in it. Sin has corrupted us to the core. And on top of that, there's the power and influence of the devil as well. But before us as Christians get too comfortable pointing the finger at the world around us, let's consider our own sin. Jesus says, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. And John said, whoever practices sin is of the devil. We shouldn't be surprised when the world around us sins freely. They're blind in the darkness. But how about our own sin? What's our excuse? Who in here sinned this week? Yep, yeah, we're in good company. How much more heinous and horrendous is it that those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who have seen the true light, come into the light, still sin? That's what I got as I studied this passage. Not, oh yeah, the world is so bad. But yes, the world is bad, but so am I. What, what betrayal is it to our loving Father every time we choose sin instead of righteousness or choose disobedience rather than obedience? In the Old Testament, the picture of this is adultery. God accuses the Israelites time and time again of whoring after idols and false gods. They whore themselves out. They prostitute themselves out to sin. Somewhere along the way, American Christianity got a little too comfortable with sin. We forgot that every time we sin, we're whoring ourselves out to the basest desires within us. And no sin is excluded here. The bitter thought that you had about that person earlier in the week, that sin, the small lie you told that no one will probably ever know about, that's rebellion against God. That unloving, unkind, divisive Facebook post you shared, that looks a lot more like something the devil would say than what God would say. And just a side note, if social media doesn't help you love people better, then delete it. We live in a very divided country, and as we get closer to election time, the division will increase. 
And there's no space in society more divisive and more divided than social media. And if you love your political party, your rights and your opinions, if you love those more and they speak louder than your love for God and the lost around us, then probably the most godly thing you can do during this year is just to deactivate your account. And that's all I'll say about that for now. Whew. There's a spiritual paternity test right here. That's what we're talking about. There's a spiritual paternity test that we're seeing Jesus lay out. Your actions reveal who you belong to. Are you a child of God or are you a child of the devil? And if we're children of God, we must live in accordance with that. These Pharisees, they couldn't receive Jesus' words, Jesus' God-given words, because they weren't of God. And of course, this doesn't go over very well with them. And in verse 48, they call him a Samaritan and demon-possessed. They say, are we not right <laughs> that you are Samaritan and have a demon? So they're saying, you know, they've moved from you're illegitimate to, to now you're not even truly a Jew and you're probably crazy and demon-possessed. But even in the midst of their insults, he still offers them life and says in verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Again, Jesus isn't hiding the truth from them, but they're of their father, the devil. He's drawing them back to the truth being found in his words and that truth setting them free from slavery to sin. But they say, now we know you have a demon because you claim people can never see death. And yet your father Abraham died. So you must be saying that you're greater than Abraham. And we've seen a few chapters earlier, they already had problems with Jesus saying he was greater than Moses. But now he's going all the way back to the first Jew, Abraham. So they're saying, how can you say you're greater than Abraham? And Jesus tells them, Abraham was looking forward to my day. He saw me in his righteousness. And, and they, can, they say, how, how can you say you've seen Abraham or Abraham's seen you? You're not even 50 years old. Abraham was thousands of years before. To which Jesus responds in verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So this is a massive statement right here. And notice his wording. The, the natural wording would be before Abraham was, I was right? That sounds a little bit normal. But instead, Jesus invokes that I am statement that we see God use when he speaks to Moses in Exodus. And he, this isn't an accident. He's clearly claiming deity and, and oneness with God. And the Pharisees, they clearly understand what he's saying too, because it says they pick up rocks to throw at him. Like this, this gets them so enraged that they're ready to to kill him right then and there, because what he just said to them is complete blasphemy. And so this shows us a little bit about their belief. Was it true belief? It doesn't look like it. They were ready to kill Jesus. They are ready to murder him because, after all, they're of their father, the devil, and he's been murdering since the beginning. They're slaves to sin, and they can do nothing but sin in their slavery. And this is still the reality of sin that confronts us today. Every single person, regardless of age, gender, ethnicity, social status, can be lumped into two categories, child of God or child of the devil. The only people who have the right to become or to be called children of God are those who have believed in the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's what John told us in his prologue. 
He says that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him, but to everyone who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But for everyone else, they're a child of the devil and destined for wrath of God. There is slavery to sin, but there is freedom available. That's the, the two sides of this verse. You see the darkness and the depth of despair in our sin, but then you see the bright, shining truth of being set free from that bondage. And the truth of the gospel contains that freedom. Just as we sang, who the sun sets free is free indeed. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You don't have to remain in slavery and death. Jesus can break the chains of sin that binds you and set you free to live in him. And not only can he do that, but he is the only one that can do that. And for us who are Christians, let us live lives worthy of our calling. Listen to Paul's exhortation in Galatians 5.1. This is the perfect verse. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So when we as believers fall back into practicing sin, it's like we're picking up those broken chains of sin and just trying to put them back on ourselves, trying to shackle ourselves again, even though Christ has set us free. Why would we do that? And as Paul says, stand firm. Stand firm knowing that the freedom and life that Jesus gives us is enough, and he's called us into something infinitely greater than what sin tries to promise us. And we do stand firm knowing that when we persevere through this life and hold firm in our faith until the end, that when we breathe our last breath in this life, we awake to the glorious inheritance with the saints for all of eternity with our Heavenly Father. And that's all made possible through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So that's, that's the message of today, that even though sin is a slave master and those who practice sin are of the devil, that, that Jesus Christ offers freedom from that and that his grace is greater if we step into that. Let me close in prayer and then we can, uh, we can move on. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for God bringing us once again, finally again together. And thank you for the preaching of your word, Lord. We thank you for for just the, the truth that's in it. I thank you for sustaining us over the last 12 weeks. We thank you that, that so many of us in here have experienced the truth, that the truth will set us free, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And Lord, I pray that this, these next few days that we spend some time just dwelling on that, meditating on that truth, that God, you have set me free. And for each one of us in our different stories and backgrounds, we know exactly what that is that the Lord has set us free. And may we, we heed the exhortation of Paul and not put that yoke of slavery back on ourselves, but step into that freedom. And Lord, we pray for those um, around us, God, that, that are still in that bondage of sin, that they would see the light, that they would come to the light, that the truth of the gospel would pierce their hearts and draw them in. Lord, be with us as we go throughout this week. Continue to sustain us and protect us and provide for us. In your name we pray. Amen.